Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Edward the Fast. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. This week, personal favourite, Edward I. Now, we should say at the start, you are in many ways the uh, the expert on this monarch. Well, I wouldn't say expert, he's a, he's a personal favourite. <laughs> and six years ago, is it six years? Yeah, five years ago, I did a dissertation on his Welsh campaigns. Which is impressive, given that you were studying... Yeah, sort of Middle East history. Middle Eastern history. Um, <laughs> yeah, managed to twist that one, but such favourite it had to it had to happen. It was all about Welsh castles, which you haven't seen. You've got to visit, but we'll get onto all that. It's quite quite an exciting one. Interesting with Edward. Uh, people who've listened to us since the start of the podcast will probably be thinking he's Edward the first, but this is not the first Edward that we have covered. No, true. In fact, he yeah. is the fourth Edward to have been King of England. So we mm. had Edward the Elder, Edward the Martyr, and Edward the Confessor. Yeah, so it's a question of why of he is number one when we've already had three. He was actually known at the time just as King Edward, and it was only when his son and his grandson, who both were king, were yeah. also called Edward, that they had to differentiate between them. And they decided to number it from the conquest rather than just ever. So he's the first Edward since uh, 1066. Right. Yeah, the interesting thing is he is, in fact, named after Edward yeah. the Confessor because that was the beloved saint and king for Henry III. Yeah. And apparently it would have been quite unfashionable at the time to have given a noble child a Ed- Saxon Ed- name. Ed- so it almost like now we think of names like Egbert and Ethelred and Athelstan as sounding really odd. But Edward really made it, didn't it? But it would have sounded yeah. odd at the time that he was called Edward. He may even have been mocked, apparently, by the Williams and Richards and Henrys of this world for having such a silly name. But in my mind, I put that I put Edward in amongst those names because of this, because of the sort of kings and queens of England. Indeed, but it's because of, of Edward, Edward. Yeah. Edward I. So who was the first second? I know we talked about this before, but who was the first number two? Oh, that would be William the second. William we call him William Rufus, there. but he was right, the second yeah, one. Yeah. Right, yeah, all from Tennessee. So, on to Edward. He's born in 1239, son of Henry III and Ella of Provence, Eleanor of Provence, of Provence, and becomes king in 1272, so he is about 33 years old when he becomes king, pretty much height of his powers. Exactly, best age for a king, Indeed. I'd say. And 19th great-grandfather to Elizabeth II. Lucky lady. Indeed. <laughs> He's about six foot two, so he's much, much higher than his contemporaries, much higher than his father, who is five foot six. And for that reason, he's nicknamed Longshanks. Uh, broad-chested, blonde-haired, handsome, although apparently had a drooping eyelid due oh, to right. inherited from his know. father. And he also had... A, he was persuasive in speech, but he had a bit of a lisp. Yeah. Uh, and even in old age, apparently, he didn't develop a stoop. His eyes were still very uh, good sight, and he was able to readily mount a horse. So he's a very physical, yeah. active, strong, tall Warrior man. King. Warrior king, very much. So, if we remember last time, under the reign of Henry III, as Prince Edward... We saw a sort of folly and glory in that civil war against Simon de Montfort. So initially, Edward actually sided with de Montfort, and there was a point at which Henry was worried that he was going to have a coup d'etat, yeah. and they weren't on speaking terms, though they were soon reconciled, and then when fighting together at the Battle of Lewis against Simon de Montfort, Edward had a great success at the start against the Londoners, but then pursued them off the battlefield, and as a consequence, the Royalists were defeated, he and his father, Henry, were captured by de Montfort, and there was this risk that you could actually see England yeah, moving yeah. towards a republic, or at least very, the Angevins losing their crown. Yeah. However, he then turns it back, escaping from his captivity when he was trying out those horses, tired them all out, and then took the last one and galloped off. Yes. And apparently, uh, when he was about to leave, I don't know if he really said this, or if this is romantic fiction, but it said that he said... Lordings, I bid you good day. Greet my father well and tell him I hope to see him soon to release him from custody. <laughs> At which point he probably shouted, Huzzah! And went riding off <laughs> it reads with like his sword drawn. Yeah, brilliant. And then at the Battle of Evesham, brilliant victory, completely outnumbered Simon de Montfort, defeats him, kills him, releases Henry III, royalist back in power. Bit of a hero, I'd say, from the sound You of could that. say that, but, you know, he'd also created some difficulties, yeah. so he's a little wayward. But learning. Learning, indeed. <laughs> So his accession to the throne, in 1270 he went off uh, onto the Crusades, went to Acre, didn't really manage to achieve an awful lot, but 1272 he discovers that his father, Henry III, has died. 
He's very upset about this. Wasn't he, he was. He also heard at the same time that his young son had died, and apparently he was devastated to hear about the father, but not particularly bothered about the son. Mm. And then one of his companions asked him why this was the case, and he replied, "It was easy to beget sons, but when a man has lost a good father, it is not in the course of nature for God to send him another." Wow, that's extreme, isn't it? On his way back, or before he goes back, actually, he's attacked by an assassin. And this is a proper assassin, not just yeah, any other sailors. An actual sort of yeah. Shiites, were they? I think so. They're um, named after Ash. Mm. Ash Hashin. Yeah. yeah. So he's, um, he kills the assailant, but he's wounded by a poisoned dagger. Oh. And it's only thanks to the skilled medics who were there at the time that his life was saved by cutting away at the blackened mm. flesh. Grim. So he could very well have died at this point. However, he does return home, but he takes quite a leisurely... Uh, route back, partly because he's ill and recovering from the poison, but also he goes around through Europe. So it's not until 1274 that he actually comes back to England for his coronation. How many years after? So that's two death? years. That's quite a long time. So this is the first time where there's someone is considered king, sort of in absence. He's declared mm. king without having to run to be co- uh, have his crowning. You think like Henry I in the New yeah. Forest rushed Ryan there and it's like, right, I'm king. Securing the treasury like Stephen and stuff. Whereas Edward is just there. Yeah. It's all secure. That says more about Henry as well, doesn't it? That the, he left it that secure. He did, it was very well secure. Anyway, he does get home. Um, extravagant celebrations for the coronation. It's the first uh, time that the crown of Edward the Confessor is used in the coronation. And it's also the first time the king and queen are crowned together. He loved her. He did love her. So, in England, he focuses on reforms to improve justice and royal authority. But the big stuff with Edward is his role as a warrior king. Yeah. So, first up is Wales. 1277, the Welsh ruler, Llewellyn ap Grifford, had been continually failing to pay Edward homage, and it gets to the point where Edward gets properly fed up, launches a huge campaign, and ultimately subjugates Llewellyn as a vassal. Mm. However, in 1282, um, there's another national uprising in Wales, this time led by Llewellyn's brother, Daffid. Initially, there's some Welsh successes, but ultimately Edward piles in there again, huge, huge forces, all-out conquest of Wales, death of Llewellyn, execution of Dafford, and now Wales is conquered, it's English, and from now on English princes are Prince of Wales, yeah. as is still the case today. Yeah. And of course he builds huge swathe of magnificent castles to enforce English rule in Wales. Legend. Which we will come to in more detail oh. later. However, 1290 is quite a big year for Edward, and some people have said um, that it could be seen as the year that changes him. The death of his wife, Eleanor of Castile, they're absolutely devoted to each other, and Edward's completely grief-stricken. It's also the year in which we see a vacancy arise in the Scottish crown, because mm. the old king, Alexander III, had died, should have been succeeded by a girl, Margaret, who's known as the Maid of Norway, because she was living in Norway, and she was betrothed to Edward I's son, Edward II. But she died on her voyage home, and there was no one who could then take over to be the Scottish king without some form of dispute. Enter uh, Mel Gibson. Enter Mel Gibson, With all this confusion. So what John did, uh, what John did, what Edward did was decide who would be king. He was Mm. seen as sort of arbiter in the situation. He named a person called John Balliol as king. But this sets off the seas in Edward's mind of thinking, this is mine, Scotland, I Mm. am the controller of Scotland, I should decide what happens. And also, in 1291, a few months later next year, we see the fall of Acre, the Crusaders, their town of Acre, which we remember Richard Lionheart had won, mm. it falls, and that's it. The Crusades are finished. It had been Edward's big goal to go back to try and take Jerusalem to the Christians, but it's gone. The Crusades have been defeated, and Edward's dream of going back there is dashed. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of stuff happened that's changing his focus. So he's not thinking about Wales so much. He's not thinking about reforms. He's thinking about Scotland. Yeah, it begins to... Because he's got no crusade to worry about now. He's got... He's got all this revenge feeling. He can just focus on hammering the Scots. He does. However, 1294 to 97, he has a series of crises which really disturb his reign. He isn't just able to focus on Scotland because he faces wars on three fronts. There's another rebellion in Wales in 1294-95. Philip IV of France declares Gascony, the sole English territory in France, as forfeit. So in effect he says, this is French now, this is mine. And Scotland... Uh, Edward dethrones uh, John Balliol after he rebels, after several years of being humiliated by Edward, claims Scotland as a conquered kingdom like Wales, but somewhat underestimates uh, the amount of unity and resistance in Scotland this will cause, and William Wallace, of Braveheart fame, Mm -hmm. 
uh, inflicts a heavy defeat on the English at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Mm. So he's got three fronts here, and it all impacts back on England because there's a really heavy financial cost of all these wars, plus a sense of denied rights um, in terms of constitutional things which they'd secured previously. Um, and there's a crisis where they're almost coming to the point of rebellion, so Edward has to make a number of concessions in order to keep the nobles on side. What year was this? This is 1297. Mm. So he's struggling a bit. The pressure's starting to mount. However, after that, it's all really about Scotland, mm. what he's called his great cause. So 1298, he goes back to Scotland and defeats William Wallace at the Battle of Falkirk. Uh, Wallace stays on the run for a while, goes into hiding, but I think in 1305 he gets captured and executed in a pretty brutal fashion. All seems fine and well, but then 1306, Robert the Bruce declares himself King of Scotland in complete um, opposition to Edward, thinking that he is now ruler and there is no king. So Edward, pretty irritated, decides, right, back we go. 1307 leads another grand campaign to take on Scotland. However, he's now 68 years old. He's getting a bit old and a bit, well, not frail, just ill. Mm. And on the way there, he falls ill and dies. Sad day. 1307, 868, Edward dies, and uh, allegedly his last wishes were for Edward II, his successor and his son, to take his bones with him on campaign so he'd be able to witness the defeat of Scotland even in <laughs> death. That's, that's, the sort of, that's the attitude you want from a medieval king. <laughs> that much passion into, into war. He really he, wanted to take the Scots. He did really want that. <laughs> he really did. In fact, on his tomb, it's, it's inscribed Hammer of the Scots. Indeed it is. Yeah, yeah. Which he wasn't. But <laughs> well, it's sort of hammer rather than conqueror. I yeah, suppose, yeah. He's, he's sort of, of tapper. He's nothing knocking away. Yeah. Anyway, that um, is a quick run through the life of Edward I, mainly his military exploits. Yeah. But what we do now is we will review him on terms of his battliness, his scandal, subjectivity, i.e. his good rule, would you want to be mm. a subject, as well as how long he ruled for how many children he has surviving him, and whether or not he has that greatness, that legacy, that brilliant achievement, which we call the Rex Factor. Wee! Right. So, Let's first up... Let's So this is Edward's big category, really. He's a warrior king. Battleliness is what he's all about. Uh, he's re- is exactly what he's about. This and this and his... I think he'd like us to say his... Um, his religious fervour with the Crusades, <laughs> but he's just all about the war, isn't he? So, let's start off with the good stuff in okay. battliness. Um, as the Prince Edward, as we said earlier, um, as a warrior king, he took part in tournaments quite a lot. He was a military man, which his father absolutely wasn't. Yeah. So, don't know where, yeah. he, where he got that from. His escape, um, very daring, very heroic, and it turns the tide of the Civil War. Because yeah. he escapes from De Montfort and is able to lead the resistance. The Seven campaign after he escapes up and down the towns, the castles, yeah. lightning campaign, and then finally the Battle of Evesham, outflanks Simon de Montfort, catches him by surprise, completely defeats him, it wins the war, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. It's a great start. That's brilliant. I mean, And that's all as a young man. That's in his 20s. Indeed. Yeah. Just a young whippersnapper. He's, he's learning, he's, he's getting his trade, but... Then we move on to Wales as king. So the first time, 1277 campaign... The reason for it, going into a little more detail, Llewellyn refused to do him homage in 1275 um, because he was due to give him homage as a sort of a vassal ruler. Um, And even when Edward came to Chester, sort of on the Welsh border, to receive it, he still didn't give it to him. It'd have been annoying. Indeed. And then Llewellyn marries Eleanor de Montfort, the daughter of Simon de Montfort, by proxy. What do you mean by She wasn't physically there, but... They made an agreement. Yeah. And this is also not very good for Edward, that this no. Welshman who's not paying him homage is planning to ma- marry the former rival who imprisoned him. Yeah, he's really trying to be annoying there. He it? really is pushing him a little bit. However, he feared Edward would be reversing some of his rights and statuses. And he'd maybe gambled that he'd been quite successful previously against Henry III. So whenever he did a show of force, he was able to make them back down. So he probably thought... Edward won't go for a big campaign. He'll just step back and go, that's fine. That didn't pay off. He doesn't do that. What Edward does is have a huge campaign, masses of supplies, ships, wagons, troops, craftsmen, thousands of labourers. Apparently, 20th of August, 1277, there were 15,640 paid infantrymen in his army. It's a huge army. Apparently, about 9,000 of those are actually Welshmen. 
because there is actually quite a lot of disaffection with Llewellyn. So his brother Daffid, who later rebels, is actually with Edward against him on this one. Yeah, yeah, it's not, uh, and it's and it's quite specifically the north and mid Wales. Yeah. So what he does is he proceeds from Chester along the north coast of Wales to Anglesey, pens Llewellyn in into Snowdonia, and then surprises him by not just thinking, "Oh, it's winter, I better go home." He stays there, builds his castles to get some supply lines going. And then just waits him out, basically. And Llewellyn is yeah. trapped. He can't get out. He can't get supplies. And he's forced to come to an agreement where he does Edward homage, finally. is His vassal, something like £50,000 debt that he can't possibly pay to Edward. But it means that legally he is seen as Edward's subject. Yeah. Yeah. So Edward really got him down. This is this um, paid <laughs> business, these 16,000 troops, yeah. 50,600. I mean, that's where he's really good, though. Because that's what he learnt from... The crusading experience. He he's for the first time paying uh, a group of knights rather than just relying on feudal duty. Mm. So they do their forty days and then go, go off home. and do their harvest and stuff. <clears throat> so it's the start of a real, it's proper campaigning. This mm. it's not just a skirmish. It's mm. really going for it and and revolutionary way of going about mm. it. And the historian Powick said that it's probable the English army was the best controlled as it was the best led that had been gathered in England since the Norman Conquest. Yeah, this Powick guy, he mm. loves he loves the organisation. He's attributing all Edward's skill in military campaigning rather than being on the field and yeah. being a massively brilliant general. Another thing he does to impose control over Wales is um, related to King Arthur, the legend of King Arthur, oh. who, remember, his bones had been supposedly discovered during the reign of Richard I at Glastonbury. The Welsh considered Arthur as one of their own, an original sort of Breton. So they believed he was still alive and he would come back to deliver them from oppression and mm. their freedom. So Edward and his wife, Ellen of Castile, make a very pointed visit to Glastonbury where they reburied Arthur and Guinevere's bones to really make the point, Arthur is no more, he's dead, he's buried, and I'm doing it, you're mine. Yeah. That's quite, that's quite a statement. Quite a statement. However, the Welsh don't pay much heed to it. So 1282, Daffid, who was Llewellyn's brother, he'd fought for Edward in 1277, but felt that he hadn't been greatly rewarded for his efforts. So he attacks Hawarden Castle, slaughters the garrison, and uh, then Llewellyn joins in, and it becomes something of a national uprising. So whereas before, the Welsh had been sort of at odds with each other. Here mm. it's a bit more um, yeah. of the whole country. Yeah, they can see that either they get one or they get Edward. Yeah. So, there were some early Welsh successes. They do quite well. However, Llewellyn um, gets caught out by English troops while on the move. And there's quite a skirmish, and he gets killed Yeah. in this skirmish. His head gets cut off, and uh, Edward has it put on the Tower of London with a mocking ivy crown. Um, and then he fights on through winter, as he did previously swarms men into Snowdonia, looking, basically, for the rebel leaders. And sure enough, Daffid is captured, and he's then hung, drawn, and quartered. Fair enough. And the Welsh <laughs> are really properly, at that point, conquered. Yeah. And of course, of course, what Edward builds castles, some man. castles. Does so, he, by half? Known as the Ring of Iron, I think, isn't it? All yeah, All these yeah. castles that he builds around. around the coast. I feel at this point I should probably just let you... Well, you. I don't know where to start, really. <laughs> Well, you see, they're concentric, and they're designed from scratch, so he doesn't have to build on, um, start expanding current castles, and possibly, um, due to his uh, time trying to siege Kenilworth, which ultimately fell to lack of resources, um, they're all all built um, on the sea, or with incredible feats of engineering, where where castles built way inland have rivers diverted so they'd be constantly supplied mm. by ship and sea, like uh, Rudlin. Mm. Absolutely phenomenal castles. And really, if you're thinking about the medieval period in the same way that I am, <laughs> where there's no gunpowder, it's all, you know... Uh, swords, swords, arrows. Swords, arrows, yeah, trebuchets. This is it. This is the absolute zenith of <laughs> castle design. Because then after that, you get gunpowder. It's going to... They have to alter the design but this is these are the castles of the age mm. there's really no better example designed by his uh, architect who picked out Master James of St George from Savoy yeah um, who we met on the way back from Crusade very Indeed. important and yeah. uh, thought I'll have a bit of that yes so yeah. some of the castles as you said we've got Flint Rudland Conwy Carnarvon Harlech Beaumaris is the sort of the yeah. final they're all fantastic as well as Wales he does have some successes in Scotland 
Um, there's a deposition of John Balliol in 1296. So after he declared him king in 1292, he'd essentially humiliated him for four years. Edward had humiliated Balliol. Finally, uh, Balliol rebels. So Edward gathers an army of about 26,000, storms up to Berwick, forces him to surrender. And when he does so, he removes, physically from him, he removes the royal arms, like the coat of arms, signifying not only his loss of status as a king, but Scotland's loss of status as a royal kingdom. Crikey. So it's a big show. Claims it as his own kingdom. Steals the uh, Scots' ancient coronation stone of Scone, or stone of destiny. Yeah, it only went back under Blair, didn't it? Yeah, only 1996 we gave it back. Oh, he... was it major then? Right. Oh, yeah, it's major. Yeah. So it was apparently dated back to thousands of years, potentially, ago. And Scottish kings would always be sort of coronated on it. Coronated, not a word, but I like to use it. <laughs> and then Edward took it away and put it under a coronation chair in England. Yeah. Really to symbol. Yeah, yeah. Scotland. He was all about the symbolism, wasn't he? Loved it. As well as that, 1298, after a defeat by William Wallace, he goes up at Falkirk, made York the centre of government, so he's really able to focus on Scotland. The night before the battle, apparently his horse trod on him. Edward. Did he think it was a symbol? Well, no, he had a couple of ribs broken, but he thought, I'll fight on anyway. That's the kind of guy he was. Just a flesh wound. He's very much sort of Lancelot in Monty Python, the Holy Grove. Yeah, brilliant, exactly, yeah. Wallace had far less men than England, but he had a sort of defensive position up on a hill, and Edward was quite cautious, because that was the first open battle he'd fought since uh, Evesham, quite, uh, sort of, what, 30 years previously? Um, initially the Scots do quite well, hold together, but eventually they're caught out in a pincer movement, destroyed by a cavalry. But it's not a complete conquest for Scotland, because what the nobles and William Wallace do is scarper. So they don't stay there and get killed, the nobles run off, so it's really the foot soldiers who get killed. So Wallace loses his military reputation, but it does mean that there are powerful Scottish lords who are there to fight another day. Yeah. Mm. Then at the Siege of Stirling, 1304, he just goes off to capture that castle. Heroically, apparently, he rode close to the walls to inspire his troops. Didn't panic when a crossbow lodged in his saddle, or even when a stone that came from a siege engine felled his horse. Didn't go off to have a rest and shot. Carries on fighting. Yeah, I mean, that's brilliant, isn't he's it? He's a warrior, as you said. Well, oh, he's fantastic. Scott. Absolutely fantastic. However. I don't want to hear it. You've got to hear this go in on. the favour of balance. There are some negatives to Edward I in battling this. As Prince Edward, although he heroically wins the day in the end, at the Battle of Lewis, when he ran off the battlefield, albeit headstrong to kill some more people, he did lose the battle for the Royalists, and that could have been fatal, that could have been it. Yeah, that's fair enough. That was an error, which he learnt from. (laughs) It was indeed. Um, However, we can also move on to Wales. You could say it's his great crowning glory, however... Prestwich, Michael Prestwich, mm. the great Edwardian scholar, he's argued that the campaign d- uh, demonstrated a certain lack of originality. So, um, 1277, the invasion largely followed Roman path. He wasn't really thinking of anything particularly different in the route that he was taking into Wales. He never actually delivers a fatal dramatic blow. So, as you said, it's about the organisation. Mm. There aren't actually any major battles. The leaders are taken out by other people. And it does effectively take him three major campaigns to properly subdue the Welsh. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had, you had the first one where it was, it was almost a show of force because mm-hmm. he wanted to... He was happy for them for to be Yeah, exactly, yeah. and get, receive the homage. Second time round, he's right, OK, really going for it this time. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's the uprising in 1293. Yeah, 94, 94. Um... Yeah, but I mean, they, that, which was no, of no great success. But he, so, but he did, he did achieve it, but without you know an outright battle. You can also argue his success must be tempered by the fact that he had an overwhelming advantage in terms of resources. Yeah, far more men, far more money, far more technology against a weak and largely divided um, mm. opposition. It was essentially a, a, a huge. It was an organised army against the. Uh, Gorillas, yeah. really, who kept just hiding in Snowdon. Yeah, <laughs> but mind you, he did learn because um, on his crusades, he in, he was fighting. He was the shoe, shoe was on the other foot, mm. so he was out there in um, enemy territory, essentially doing the guerrilla tactics himself. Mm. 
so we could then learn the other way. And instead of burning all the crops, mm. we starve them out by harvesting them yeah, just and eating the them yourself, yeah. Yeah, which is much more sensible. It's clever. The castles, which you love, Brilliant. I've got to say it, impressive as they are, they're built to an arguably unnecessary excess. Definitely. So costly. He didn't complete the building of all of them. Yeah. He didn't have the finances mm. to complete them. And ultimately, that has an effect on future campaigns. And you've got to say, was it actually necessary for Wales? No. I mean, if it had built uh, three ordinary-sized, ordinary-impressive yeah. castles and one amazing one and saved all the rest for yeah. Scotland, he might have um, had yeah. a little bit more success. Yeah. Mm. France really is where the big guns are, and Edward isn't really able to make much of an impression there. In fact, he only manages to retain Gascony from Philip IV by a, a marriage treaty whereby he marries again. Yeah. I mean, how focused would, would you say he was on France? In, in that he's all about... When he was growing up, he was all about this medieval uh, romantic idea of chivalry and uh, the old warrior kings, mm. and he wanted to go on crusade for similar sort of reasons... So I think maybe he was he was focusing all his energy on being one of these great Anglo-Saxon kings like Edward mm. um, and consolidating Britain. Like, uh, Well, but on. in 1294, when Philip says, right, Gascony's mine now, Edward wants to take it back. And in 1297, as we see later, he isn't able to get any of his nobles to come with him to try and mm. take it back because of all the pressures that they've been put under. Yeah, so he's, he's also very greedy. <laughs> he's also very greedy, yeah. yeah. But he, w- he did want to. Yeah, he did want to. Yeah. He wasn't able to. And in Scotland, though he has some successes, of course, there was a defeat at Stirling Bridge to William Wallace, where he wasn't there, to be fair. No. It was under the control of a chap called Earl Warren, who apparently had overslept and so delayed the English advance. And then when they reached the uh, Stirling Bridge, which goes over the River Forth, some of the troops go across, but then Wallace comes around, cuts them off. They get slaughtered. The um, treasurer in Scotland, Cressingham, has his corpse skinned. Jesus. A really pretty awful defeat for the English. Crikey, Moses. And ultimately, although Edward is then able to go back and has some victories, he never conquers Scotland. He completely underestimates the threats that they pose. His rather contemptuous treatment of them helps unite the nation. And unlike Wales, they've got a strong defensive frontier. They're a more unified kingdom state mm. than Wales had ever been. Yeah. And it really leaves a pretty damaging legacy for the next 300 years. Previously, there have been harmonious relationships... Now, they're pretty much at war for 300 yeah. years, and the only people to benefit are the French. <laughs> that's it's, an error. It's not a great yeah. legacy for him to No, that's true. that's true. But, but I mean, who, has, who can con- uh, conquer the Scots? Well, exactly, but he, he thought he could. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we must now give him a score for battliness. We've had some great stuff, but we've had some drawbacks. We've uh, Well, yeah, OK. Now, I know we've had drawbacks. <laughs> right, we have had drawbacks. Let's have a quick recap. Scotland And I didn't mention, sorry, I just remembered, yeah. the Crusades. Oh, that was yes. his big ambition. Yes. Yeah, was, when he yeah. goes in 1272, 1270, 1272, he doesn't really achieve very much, has to come home, mm. not being able to have done anything, which, to be fair, was because the French king, Louis the Ninth had died, most of the other forces had left. Yeah. But it was still Edward's burning ambition to go back. 1291, when Acre falls, that's it over. His mm. big dream, military-wise. Yeah, it was his big dream, but, I mean, I think... He appreciated when he got over there. It was never. It was the end of the crusading age. It, it was. was but if we have a a list, we've got France, Crusades, Wales, Scotland. He's really got one out of four there. Yeah, but you have to, okay. <laughs> so he's got a, he's got a to do list, right? Yeah. <laughs> Crusades. He went. He saw. And probably in his eyes, he conquered. <laughs> <laughs> but he got over there. It's Killed just, the assassin. Yeah, exactly. He. he you know, he'd had a bit of... He'd just got that off his chest. He needed to do that. It was his, it was his gap year. Yeah. Right? Then he comes back, thinks, <clears throat> right, what am I going to do? Really, his first challenge, although maybe overkill, he really, really goes for it. And he, he does take Wales. And he takes Wales pretty damn hard. Then you've got this burning issue going on in the background, France, because it's historic. He does want it, but because of his other expeditions, he can't gather the force. Mm. So he cuts his, in my eyes he cuts his losses. <laughs> right. And then he thinks, right, okay, Scotland, but it's the Afghanistan of Europe. You're never gonna conquer Scotland. Indeed. Um so you know, but he was still trying. Up until he was sixty eight years old, he wasn't he wasn't quitting. It's not it's like true. he um he got killed in battle or he had a massive defeat. He was on the way to go and he was gonna give them some geriatric <laughs> ass kicking. 
I, I'm. I think it's good. I think <laughs> obviously, I think it's good. Where, where are you going with it? Well, I'm. I'm probably going to upset you a little bit. Oh, Graham. I'm going to give him an eight. It's very good, but it's not as good as some of the ones we've had before. It's not the output, isn't? <laughs> no, agreed. The input is phenomenal, and it's not that I'm giving him marks for trying. I, I, I would. All the time I've been doing Rex Factor, if I can't give Edward a nine, I, I'd, I have to give him a nine. I think give him a nine. So that's yeah. a seventeen for battliness, which is a very good score. Yeah, it's a very good score. It's a very, yeah, good, it's score. A very good score. Okay, deal. Scandal. So he's got some scandalous stuff too. Oh yeah. Sometimes known as Edward the Leopard because he was seen as being untrustworthy. So the leopard, we have the Leo, which is the lion, courageous. But then Pardus, which is Panther, which is seen as being dark and wily. So there's a contemporary uh, verse, Song of Lures, um, which said, When he is cornered, it's about Edward, mm. when he is cornered, he promises anything you'd like, but once he's escaped, he goes back on his word. The line by which he gains his ends, he calls prudence. Whatever he wants, he holds to be lawful and thinks that there are not legal bounds to his power. Because Henry VIII, isn't it? Yeah, so some examples of this. Civil War, he initially sided with Simons and Montfort and then changes sides again. And then in the battles at Battle of Evesham, found he was approaching in Simons and Montfort's son's colours, which he captured from Kenilworth. So de Montfort thought, ah, it's my yeah. son coming. Oh no, it's Edward. Uh-oh. So apparently this was conceded a little bit of an underhand tactic. Yeah, I mean, you can see that would be a bit... Also at Gloucester, apparently, he was besieging the town when a rebel army approached, which he saw was big enough to defeat him. So what he did was he sort of parleyed with them, came to an accord, and they had a truce. But as soon as the rebel troops left, he then went back to Gloucester, threw the citizens into prison, and laid heavy ransoms on the town. So again, he sort of deceived them, said, oh yeah, truce. Right, they're gone, let's get them. <laughs> Um, yeah, I know that, I think that's brilliant. <laughs> and at Stirling Castle, you'll love this as well, Stirling Castle in 1304 when he was besieging it, apparently he refused to let the garrison out, even when they tried to surrender, because he wanted first to try out his new siege engine. <laughs> that so is fantastic. Now wait, 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 so watch this one, watch this one. <laughs> that's brilliant. Like many of his contemporaries, he has a massive temper on him, and there are seats for repairs to his daughter Elizabeth's uh, coronet, apparently after he threw it into the fire in a fit of rage. Mm. And his daughter Margaret, when she was uh, married at the wedding, he paid compensation to a page after hitting him on the head sufficiently (laughs) to injure him. And what I love about those two is the fact that we know this, not because of monks telling us, oh, the king is so mad, but through receipts for him (laughs) repaying the damage. He can imagine him rather sheepish afterwards. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, where do you want me to swipe that? (laughs) Um, Edward II, his son... Apparently he tore out some of his hair when um, his son was trying to promote his favourite, Piers Gaveston. His favourite. Indeed, we'll come to that next time. Um, above his station. And as he was shaking him and tearing at him, he shouted, You bastard son of a bitch! Now you want to give lands away, you who never gained any. As the Lord lives, were it not for fear of breaking up the kingdom, you should never enjoy your inheritance. Ooh, doesn't bode well Indeed. for next week. Um, his um, falcon, he loved hunting, he loved falconry. And apparently one of his hunting companions failed to control his falcon properly. So Edward storms off after him, forces his horse across a river and chases him with his sword drawn <laughs> until he submits. Brilliant. And his temper is so notorious, apparently in 1294, when he was at odds with the clergy over uh, taxation levels, he was so imposing in his anger that when the clergy's intermediary, the elderly dean of St Paul's, came to parley with him, he died in, impress- in his presence. Because he was that angry. He was so cross, <laughs> yeah. The offset of the temper is, of course, brutality, which mm. we mentioned a few times. Simon de Montfort, after he's killed at Evesham, brutally mutilated, cut up all over the place, including some of his more sensitive areas. And Edward had actually um, set up a special death squad specifically to kill Simon de Montfort in battle. Well, I mean, it was before assassinations were, uh, were ruled out under the Geneva Convention. Well, so, I mean, you know. <laughs> Dafford at Grifford and William Wallace both hung, drawn and quartered a really horrific... You can watch that on Braveheart. That's yes, it. you can. He's a brilliant character on Braveheart, the actor who plays him. Fantastic. Edward or... Yeah, Edward. Well, yeah, Mel's, Mel's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Baronial violence, noble violence, is something which previously, we remember, hadn't really happened. The nobles didn't get killed in battle. They got captured, yeah. they got ransomed. Edward absolutely ends this chivalric tradition. From now on, 
they get killed. So we see people like Griffith, Wallace, De Montfort, they're executed in pretty horrific ways. Usually this wouldn't be happening. Mm. He argues that they're traitors, and consequently that's the way it should be, but it had been centuries since this policy yeah. had really been enacted. I guess his, uh, the Baron's revolt under his father would have been mm. informative. As you see, this, that sets the tone for the next yeah. few centuries. And also, he imprisoned the Countess of Buchan and uh, Robert Bruce's sister in cages at Berwick and Roxburgh. Jeepers. And he claimed that he was quite considerate because he provided latrines. That's really nice. The most notorious of all his deeds, however, is the expulsion of Jews. Yeah. In 1290, the Edict of Expulsion. Jews had first come to England in, uh, well, after about 1066, sort of acted as moneylenders to the rich and powerful, particularly to the kings. However, the heavy taxes from John, Henry III and Edward meant that they essentially had run out of money. So Edward was forced to look elsewhere. And he doesn't need them so much anymore. 1290, when he wants to raise more taxes from his nobles, he agrees to expel the Jews. So all the Jews are expelled from England. Very yeah. popular um, with the people, carried out very quickly. And there are about 3,000 Jews of a population of sort of 3 million. So it's about 1%. Population. And it's not formally overturned until 1656. That's another little, that's a good little fact there. Mm. But, I mean, there's no excuse in that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like I can back this up with any. It's not, n- but it's sort of a. Um, no, there's no but. <laughs> there's no but. There it are. Does a lot. have heirs of Nazi Germany. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a familial thing. I mean, his dad wasn't terribly keen on them, no. did he? Uh, no one was. I mean, they've. Throughout Europe, they're being expelled yeah. from countries. Um, so that's not specific to Edward, but it definitely is scandalous. Yes. So, score. I mean, there's quite quite a lot to go on there, but no... Well, I suppose the Jews is a big controversial thing. The thing is, none of it's so controversial at the time. No, I mean, There's a lot of stuff add... for modern sensibilities. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that should be a point for everyone until 1656. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's pretty good, isn't it? Um, I'm going to give him a seven. I think there's a lot of decent stuff there, but... It's maybe not on the same level as a Beckett, as a... No, as a I think seven's probably fair. I think you've got a lot of really nasty scandal, like the mm. brutality and the, the <coughs> all the just nastiness going on in battle here, the skinning and the hand-drawing and quartering mm. and the killing of nobles, um, which sort of goes hand-in-hand hand with this outrageous temper of chasing his friends with swords, frightening people to <laughs> death. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think that's good. I think it's really good. Uh, six, seven with the reg- you know with the regulation one for expelling Jews, which so is a bad seven, news. A seven, yeah, seven. Absolutely. So that's fourteen for scandal. He's not doing too badly. Subjectivity. So this is: Would you want to be a subject to him? Is he a good ruler? And we do see. You might be surprised for the, all the temper and the battliness that actually there's quite a lot here because he's influenced by Simon de Montfort and his experience of the Civil War. So he had initially actually supported de Montfort briefly. So he had this sense of sort of civilian duties of kingship. He believed that providing justice and good government would do good for the country and it would have proper order. But he also believed he needed to restore royal authority so that he could control the just practices across the land. So his two things are just government... But royal order. Royal order. Yeah. (coughs) And you can totally see where he got all this from, that he can... um, uh, he's just ruthlessly organised in all aspects of his life, war and then justice, and you can see how it, it, it the benefits of it, but at all times that, that's got to be backed up by this royal power, otherwise you see, he feels, you'll mm. see what happened in the, his early life. So at the start of his reign he faces quite a big financial challenge, um, apparently the annual revenue was only about £25,000 a year, which is what it had been back in sort of 1130, but inflation meant that it was probably half that in terms of oh, real right. value. There was a decline in the royal land income because so much had been given away in patronage. And 1240 to 1260, as we said, pretty much exhausted the wealth of the Jews in England. Mm. So he's got money problems. However, he's got lots of solutions. Land, he stops giving lands away and he procures more through sort of ongoing insistence. So he makes sure whenever people die, whenever there's anything there, lands come back into royal control. Customs duties, wool in particular, very successful export, brought in something like £10,000 a year in itself. In 1275. Taxation, regular and intensive taxation, meant 1275 he was raising about £82,000, way more than the start of his reign. 1290, something like £117,000. 
Crikey. Huge amounts of money. Yeah. Apparently there's only about a million pounds in circulation at this point, so he's really <laughs> wow. bringing it home. And he also finds some bankers yes. from Italy. Riccardi of Luca. Mm. Harking back to our uh, William Rufus, Holy Foes of Luca. Um, so he used this firm to fund his expenditure over large periods, so they sort of provide loans, in effect. However, they are dismissed in 1294 when they refuse to fund all of his wars in France and Wales, so they get to a point where it's just he too exhausts much. the bank. He does. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he's raised a lot of money, it's pretty successful, but the big thing for him are his political remedies for mm-hmm. the country, good governance. He has a large number of statutes that he puts in place to tackle specific problems for the country. So the fact that they're statutes is important, because this means their standing is in law as permanent fixtures. So there are a lot of issues over whether, oh, I was given rights under Richard, I was given rights under this king, yeah. my father, my grandfather. It's a much clearer statement of this is the law and this is how authority is decided. Yeah. yeah. Lays that down. Um, we have things called the Hundred Rolls, which is where at the start of his reign he had this grand inquiry across the country to hear complaints about corruption by royal officials. And indeed he removes lots of royal officials, particularly sheriffs, and replaces them with knights and with much worthier men, so he's trying to ensure that the good governance is restored at a local level. You see, legend. There's also a thing called Quo Warranto, which is where he established what warrant, Warranto, liberties um, were held by nobles. So either liberties in terms of the powers and the privileges that the nobles had, what right did they have to those liberties? And he argues, of course, that they should all come from him as king. And if there was no royal licence to prove the rights, then the liberties should revert back to the king. So he's trying to control power and privileges. Statutes of Gloucester in 1278, he revives a system of general um, ayers, or heirs, which is where the royal sort of justices went on tour throughout the land. So it had been in place under Henry II, but since then we'd seen it decline, and again the nobles in their Mm. regions were kind of deciding things. More regional power and more corruption. What Edward tries to do is to get justices of the peace, people going around with royal authority from the centre, ensuring that justice takes place. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's exactly what you'd be after. Sometimes has been called the English Justinian, named after a Roman ruler who was put in lots of law codes. Reflects the large number of laws. In reality, he probably wasn't involved in the drafting of any of these laws, unlike Henry II. But the fact that so many take place shows that he gives his assent and he wants action to be taken where there is a problem. Justinian law is um, famous as being the basis of a lot of laws... Mm. I don't know till this down or not, but those you know <laughs> around Europe they yeah you had so to be called the English Justinians brilliant mm, but probably a, a exaggeration by subsequent historians mm. not at the time. Also, Parliament has lots of important um, steps forward here. Um, he does have a Parliament which does include representation of most strata of society. So we have barons, clergy, knights, and burgesses, and he uses Parliament for the first time to hear petitions. So at least two times a year, that means people are able to put petitions to Parliament and say if there's an issue or corruption they want dealing with, yeah. it gets a voice. Yeah. So he's, he's learned from de Montfort, he's seeing a benefit of Parliament. So from 1290s, he has regular parliaments, and there's an acceptance that taxation cannot be levied without common assent of all the realm, i.e. Parliament agreeing to it. So there are some extent to which Parliament has some curbs on royal authority. Uh, yeah. And Edward is managing Parliament very well, restraining his temper and prolonging these sessions. So we see a sort of a monarchical Parliament really coming to the fore here. This is brilliant. It is, and when he dies, there are genuine eulogies and grief. He's not much loved or liked personally, but he's very well respected and seen as a strong and largely just ruler. Which is definitely what we want after Henry III. Very much so. However, there is some bad points again, I'm afraid. Go on then. Financially, although he raises a lot of money, he spends an awful lot more. So uh, the total amount of money, as we said, was pretty small. Jews so heavily taxed they couldn't afford to pay anymore. The Italians, um, who he has all the loans for, it means that he dies heavily in debt. And of course, as you said, even then, they still get to yeah. a point where they're like, we can't keep giving you yeah. loans, yeah. we need some money back. The first Welsh campaign, 1277, costs something like £23,000 in and mm. of itself. He spends masses and masses on building those castles. Yes. Yeah are wonderful, of course. 1294 to 98, the three war fronts that he's fighting on, something like £750,000 for the four years that it costs him. 
fight on all those fronts. It's extreme. Huge costs. And as a result, um, we see struggles with the nobles. Partly, they're upset about an infringement on their rights. So the Statute of Gloucester 1278, the Quo Waranto, the Liberties, which he was tackling, they see this as a challenge to their authority, and it's asking them to prove their worth, and a lot of them get quite upset about it. And Earl Warren, apparently, drew a rusty sword used by his ancestor at Hastings, said, this is my warrant. My ancestors came with William the Bastard and conquered their lands with the sword, and by the sword I will defend them from anyone intending to seize them. He, he riles them up a bit. Yeah. And as a result, public prosecutions for this rarely progressive judgment, which sort of brings the authority of local officials into doubt a little bit. And then in uh, 1285, the Statute of Westminster, um, it says, from day-to-day robberies, homicides and arsons are more often committed than they used to be. Which is a very familiar message, but there's a sense that law and order is declining, perhaps due to destabilisation of the justice system because of the... Clearing and throwing with the nobles. Yeah. Or, so much, um, he's removed so much of the money <laughs> that there's, there's uh, you know, times of recession, you see crimes in, increase. Oh, indeed. 1294, he actually had to give up on the Quoronto writs and just give that up. He wasn't able to enforce it. And of course, 1297, as we said, there's a real crisis when you've got the war in France, you've had the rebellion in Wales, you've got all the d- issues with Scotland, all this money the arbitrary taxations on wool, personal grievances the nobles had, we're almost at the point of rebellion. Castles are being readied for action. It's really getting pretty sensitive. And indeed, Edward wanted to go to France, he wanted to take his lands back, and he wanted the nobles to come with him. But nobody wants to go. He tries to force them, but not a single one will come. And um, there's a conversation he had with uh, one of his nobles, Hugh Bigod, where Edward shouts at him, "'By God, O Earl, either you go or hang!' To which the reply came, By the same oath, O king, I shall neither go nor hang. And he doesn't go, and he doesn't hang. Edward's forced to go to France without any of them coming along with it. And when he comes back, he has to make a lot of concessions. So he reconfirms Magna Carta, abolishes the extra duty on wool, agrees about the no taxation without consent only at that point. Mm. And really, he's thankful in a way, because of the defeat at Stirling Bridge, National unity is restored a bit when they say, oh, we've got a problem in Scotland, we need to band yeah. together. However, mm. in his fairness, he never actually faces a rebellion. Yeah. The relations with the nobles are pretty good, and it's only really the pressures on the country, rather than his style of government, which brings everything to a fore. Yeah, and I think from that, we've got some seriously good stuff for subjectivity here. It's Again, it's the situation... And his tick list that um, force a huge financial burden, which pushes the country to the edge, but doesn't break it. Mm. Puts in all the the new laws, all the justice systems, and still manages to raise the money Mm. and go off and fight these wars. Albeit them not always successful up in the north, but he wasn't to know he was still fighting them up until (laughs) his dying day. Um, But really, really great. We called the English Justinian and to... Be doing all this while yeah. he's focusing on wars. Although, as you say, he isn't doing any of it really. It's his no, Chancellor it's Robert Burnell who's actually doing it. Yeah. When his Chancellor dies, twelve ninety two, we don't see an awful lot of legislative action. Yeah, it's, it's sort of his patronage under his. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think it's really good. I can't see who else have we seen that has been has put or in there under their reign has put that much effort into. Well, I mean, Henry Justice. II was actually writing the law codes and actually going around hearing the cases. Alfred the Great as well also did this. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's got to be pretty close to that, I'd say. Mm. Um, so what have we got there for Henry 17? Mm. I'm going to give him a 7, I think, because I think the pressures that he puts the country under, it's, again, he leaves the country in a bad state. Mm. for his son there's so much debt and so much pressure put on the nobles he's able to control it but someone else has to come after him yeah and, and it's harder for them to demand the same with the nobles so yeah. it's like richard the lionheart and john yeah he leaves a mess he'd managed it but the next person hasn't got much chance yeah because he's on the back foot from the start mm. um yeah okay i was thinking you were going to go six for some reason in my head at bars yeah seven i'm happy with seven just panicking. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> anyway, it's another 14 of a scandal, so he's doing pretty well. 
longevity. So he's king from 1272 to 1307, so that's 35 years as that. king. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Same as Henry the First and Henry the Second, one of the higher ranks. Yeah, yeah. Highest being ridiculous, 56 from his father. He doesn't quite manage that. Yeah. Dynasty, not the program. All in all, he has seven children surviving him. Four from his first marriage, which is to Eleanor of Castile, including his successor, Edward II. But just say at this point, his relationship with Eleanor of Castile, as we've alluded to, very, very close, probably the most sympathetic um, element of Edward's character and reign, really. Very loving and faithful marriage. They were well matched, so Eleanor also loved travel, she loved new experiences, so she accompanied him everywhere, even on the Crusades, where it took them so long coming back, she actually gave birth to a son, Alfonso. Oh, hence his name. <laughs> um, both loved hunting, both loved chess. Apparently there was a thing on Easter Monday, they had a tradition whereby Edward would be kidnapped, inverted commas, by seven of Eleanor's ladies, and he'd have to pay a £2 fine before he could then return to the room and indulge himself with Eleanor. <laughs> so they used to do that. A role play? Okay. Every year. And it was quite sad, apparently after she died, they did the same thing again, which he went rather solemnly through the motions, because of course he oh. couldn't then... Indulge himself. With the assassin um, in the Crusades, there was a legend that Eleanor sucked the blood from his poison. Yeah. Taking the poison out. In reality, she was probably actually taking from his stent in hysterics. But nevertheless, Edward credited her with nursing him back to health. And indeed, they had 16 children, although most died young. So clearly a very active mm. relationship <laughs> that they had. And when she died in 1290 after contracting marsh fever, he was absolutely devastated and he said, my harp is turned to mourning. In life I loved her dearly, nor can I cease to love her in death. And as you said, he builds... She dies sort of somewhere outside Lincoln, and then her body is stuffed with barley, embalmed in linen, and brought whoa, back Whoa, whoa, it's done what? Stuffed. Stuffed with barley? I think that was just to, like, keep it... Stop it rotting from yeah. inside. Oh, crumbs. And then it comes back oh. from Lincoln to Westminster... And they have 12 stops along the way. And at each of these stops, he builds these memorials known as the crosses because we have this foundation with sort of statues of her and lots of decorative images and then huge crosses. Only three of them survive today, but they were, in terms of the foundations, there are no crosses left. As you said, Charing Cross is where it gets its name from. That's brilliant. And then, after that, um, he's a widower for much time. He doesn't have any interest in marrying again until... Um, he's forced to as part of a peace agreement with Philip IV of France. So 1299, he marries um, Philip's daughter, Margaret of France, and they have three children, including two sons. And she's a lot younger, she's 20, he's about 60. Crikey. And she's the first French princess to become Queen of England. I'd have thought an alliance, that would have made sense. Well, they've always married against France previously. Oh, but but French queens are Mm. royal queens, yeah. Um, They have a positive relationship as well. She quickly becomes pregnant. He's delighted when she has uh, the sons. And she's able to make intercessions to sort of temper his temper a little. So um, she promotes reconciliation with Edward II, urges leniency against some of his enemies. He does demonstrate some of his medieval lack of manly tact with her. There's a point where her sister dies, and he's advising the priest on how he should break the news. So he said he should break the news to the Queen as gently as possible, but if she became very upset, he was to say that she mustn't mind, as Blanche had been as good as dead for a long while. <laughs> That's like a medieval gag. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So, um, yeah, some nice stuff there. From yeah, Edward, yeah. His family life. He was also terrifically loyal to his mum. I am... Uh, they, I remember he was trying to raise, in his desperation to raise taxes for the crusade, because by the time it came around for the Welsh ones, he was, he was, he knew how to raise finance better, but for the, for the crusade ones, it was done in a hurry because he'd made a swear, uh, no, to the mm. King of France. So, um, he allowed Londoners to buy their land back or something like that. And the reason they weren't allowed to in the first place is it was as a, pun- as a punishment for pelting his mother with mud. Yeah. And that's the reason why he ran after the London troops that he defeated. Oh, right. Because yeah. they were... He just hated Londoners. Yeah. Right. There you go. Anyway, that gives him a big total of 87 points. God, that's huge. Second highest, just behind Henry II. Wow, he'd be pleased with that. He would indeed. And now we come to the final category. Does he have 
that sense of greatness, that legacy, that brilliant achievement, the star quality, which we call... Rex Factor! I imagine you're in two minds at this stage. I am. I, I don't know whether to say yes or just walk out as it's inevitability. <laughs> Arguments in favour. Um, I just don't know where to start. Right? <laughs> You've got brilliant scandal. Okay, we've got hanging, drawn and quarterings, we've got beheadings, it's all a bit dark and grim, it's it's really good stuff. Um, he's all these good reasons for why we should <laughs> commend him but to as the ages. As, you know, as a medieval king, you wonder that he's got a temper on him like his great-great-great-grandfathers, the Normans, ripping out his hair... You know, chasing people with swords because it is a bit of a rage. You imagine that being chased after by six foot two, pretty tall today, let yeah. alone back then when you were talking about the previous ones who are five foot six or yeah. something, previous kings. Battling us. Now, as I would say, at this stage, all you've really said is he was a bit of an angry, nasty man. At this stage, right? But battling us, this is. I mean, we've already chatted that one through, but I, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. He's. A bit maybe bears a grudge, you could say, with the uh, with the Scots. Um, but I mean, really, if you want a um, if you want a, a really good reason, it's subjectivity. Mm. There's a fantastic amount of law going on there. He managed to uh, found out raise money for the for the crown from uh, his inherited mm. twenty five grand yeah. to a hundred thousand. Let me put an argument against him having the Rex Factor. Okay. The thing you thought you couldn't imagine hearing. No. You've got to hear it. He overreaches himself. Wars on three fronts, he can't do it. And as a result, it immense economic cost to the country. He can't afford to pay for it. Crusades isn't able to achieve anything. Scotland isn't able to conquer it and leaves a really damaging legacy for the country. Yeah. France doesn't make much of an impression. No. All he's really got is Wales. And is it that big of an achievement no. compared to what we've had before? Just Wales? It's not. It's is that not. enough? It is enough. It is enough. He's overreached himself, yes, but he, in his mind, <laughs> he, he was so determined. He was that archetypal medieval king where he was just... I mean, he christened himself the Hammer of the Scots. <laughs> he was still going for it. And that's a good point, actually, something Michael Prestrich said about him. He was not a man to be diverted from his purpose. His succinct and sharp recorded utterances suggest a man of few doubts. Mm. So we compare that to John and Henry, people who are shaped by events. Edward, whatever happens, he's like, no, I'm doing this. Yeah, and he did overstretch himself, but that was due to this decisiveness. Like, if he was going into Wales, bang, he was going to do it properly. Scotland, damn. Situation arises in France... He can't quite manage it because he's got so much invested in this. So it's his, it's his good personality traits that don't allow him to function as other things <laughs> do. But really, jolly effective as a. You wouldn't. I think of all the medieval kings, I wouldn't like to face this one the most mm. on the battlefield. But I would like to be his subject. Mm. And if there's ever a. Um, a reason to give a medieval king the Rex Factor is striking fear into his enemies and wanting and well wanting to be a subject. Some assessments of him. For Scot- Scottish listeners will see him as an oppressive tyrant, as they've seen in Brave Arms. Mm-hmm. Mark Morris, the biographer, describes him very well, a great and terrible king. You think has both of his yeah, uh, yeah. elements. As Michael Prestwich said, he would have been con- he was considered a great time. A great king in his own time, essentially, sort of the perfect medieval king. He is the perfect medieval king. The way he, the way he relies so much on um, symbolism, the stealing the sto- stone of scone hmm. and sitting on it, yes. <laughs> literally sitting out under his throne, burying Arthur. Yeah, he's he's there, always armoured. He's chasing people <laughs> with swords, and when he's relaxing. He's essentially relaxing on his enemy's heritage. He's sitting there. He is boss. (laughs) And he's sitting there on this stone in the most impressive castles you'll ever see. They're world heritage sites. That is Rex Factor all over the place. Well, let's come to it then. The final judgment on Edward I. Does he have the Rex Factor? Ali, take your time. Yes or no? Yes. Imagine if you changed your mind.
So, will I say yes? Will I say no? There's <laughs> arguments in favour. There are arguments against how does he compare to the previous kings. I'm going to say... Yes. Yes! He does have the Rex Factor. Well done to Edward Yay. the First. Edward Longshanks, you joined many illustrious predecessors on that Rex Factor mountain. You have the star quality. Boom! You're one of the best. You're second best in score as well. Indeed. So that's it for Edward the First. Um... We may be back next time with Edward II. It might be that Ali is now. I'm finished now. He's done all he oh, wants well. to do. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Next time we'll be doing his son, Edward II. Uh, perhaps a somewhat less successful reign. Mm. But we shall see. See you next time. Bye.